Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Coming in from the cold, looks back across three centuries of the beautiful game in England and contains references to social attitudes and language from the past that some listeners may find challenging. again cutting back inside but here's Raheem Sterling on the hat-trick slots it in beautifully goal number five Let's have a Liverpool take it quickly in by Venice Aldridge going up Barnes is in there and Barnes has equalized a rare headed goal for John Barnes and here's Regis they're caught square this is a chance oh he did it superbly almost went for Flowers he didn't pull loudly enough Henry decided he had to take it Three defenders and a goalkeeper ahead of him. Oh, what a finish from Andy Cole! Taylor doggedly is trying to stay with Billy Bonds. Bonds a little cross and Clyde Burst the goal! Number three, Clyde Burst! This is the story of black male footballers in the English game. This is our sporting history. This is yours. I'm Jessica Crichton and this is Coming In From The Cold, a story you can follow on TalkSport and all your favourite podcast platforms. Diggs takes it. Last time on Coming In From The Cold, we told you about some real trailblazers. Arthur Wharton, the goalkeeper from the 1880s, who's recognised as the world's first black professional footballer. Midfield general Walter Tull, the Spurs and Northampton star who died a hero in the killing fields of World War I. And Jack Leslie, the flying winger denied an England call-up because of the colour of his skin. This time around, you'll learn about the player who really did become the first black man to wear the white shirt of England the great highs and tragic lows of the Black Flash, and the Bermudian boy who became the man in the East End of London. There were actually more black and mixed-race footballers during the interwar years than you might be aware of. Like Eddie Paris, a winger for Bournemouth, Luton and Northampton. Paris, whose dad was from Barbados, became Wales' first international of colour in 1931. 
Trinidadian forward Alf Charles moved to England and became Southampton's first black player in the 1930s. There was Stoke City's Frank Sue of mixed Chinese and English heritage, who became the first minority ethnic man to play for England, albeit in unofficial friendlies during World War II. And Roy Brown, whose father was Nigerian, came through the ranks at Stoke before the war. He went on to play more than 200 career games for both the Potters and Watford, as league football re-emerged in 1946 from its long hiatus. The Second World War had a profound impact on the UK, economically, politically and culturally. During the conflict, tens of thousands of African-American soldiers were stationed in the UK, as well as troops from India, Africa and the Caribbean. Most went home when hostilities ended, but some stayed behind. And after the devastation of the Blitz, the call went out to Britain's colonial empire to help rebuild the mother country. So thousands of people from the Caribbean relocated to Britain during the post-war years. Historian, writer and academic Professor Paul Gilroy says this so-called Windrush generation arrived in the land they cared about, but one that didn't always care for them. I want to distinguish the experience of the first migrants from the Caribbean, people who came in the 1940s and early 1950s to this country as part of the rebuilding and the cleaning up of Britain after the effects of the Second World War. And I, I would say that, that there's a lot of black settlers who came in to take on that role. And they did it because they felt part of a larger political, cultural and national community that included them. I mean, my mother came here um, in 1952. She, for example, used to say that she'd learned English flowers and plants and birds and butterflies at her school in Guyana. And she knew what they were in the same way that she knew about, you know, Shakespeare and Milton and, you know, romantic poets and all that. She had learned all that in the Caribbean. So there's a sense in which with all of that in your head, oh, that's a Robin, that's a Daisy, that's Shakespeare, you know, all of this in your head. You're not, you're not coming to a foreign land. You're coming to a place that you've been made to know before you got there. For me, that's the defining characteristic of the Windrush generation. Arrivals at Tilbury. The Empire Windrush brings to Britain 500 Jamaicans. Many are ex-servicemen who know England. They serve this country well. In Jamaica, they couldn't find work. Discouraged but full of hope, they sailed for Britain. Citizens of the British Empire coming to the mother country with good intent. One member of the Windrush generation travelled to England for a trial with Arsenal in 1946. Lloyd Lindbergh de la Pena was born in Kingston, Jamaica. Known as Lindy, the then 19-year-old was an all-star sportsman who excelled at cricket and athletics, but his passion was football. And while he never got to deal with the Gunners, Della Pena would become the first Jamaican to play top-flight football in England. He was a squad member as Portsmouth won back-to-back -back league titles in the late 1940s, before establishing himself as a star of the North at Middlesbrough. Football historian Phil Facilli, author of Colouring Over the White Line, The History of Black Footballers in Britain, picks up Lindy's story. Yeah, he was a great goal scorer, Lindy, and he played with Brian Clough. They were good friends, Brian Clough and Lindy Delapina, yeah, and uh, the best part of his career was at Middlesbrough uh, in the 50s, and then he went back and became a, a renowned broadcaster in Jamaica. Yeah, yeah so, yeah. yeah. 
After providing lots of assists for Brian Clough and grabbing a good few goals of his own, Lindy retired after playing nearly 400 games and scoring more than 100 goals in English league football. Della Pena returned to Jamaica in the mid-1960s and became a well-known broadcaster. And by a twist of fate, he has a connection to the legendary John Barnes, who was also born on the Caribbean island. I know Lindy Della Pena, we call him very well from growing up in Jamaica. I mean, Lindy, in fact, I didn't even know Lindy was a footballer because Lindy used to read the news. My mother worked with Lindy. My mother was a, a, a Jamaican presenter in Jamaica. On the te- and Lindy wasn't, well, she worked with Lindy, Lindy read the news. So I knew Lindy growing up. He would come to the house and I'm like, it's only later on in life I knew Lindy played for Millsbury as a footballer. So um, one of the first black footballers. So I always do, because I always thought growing up in Jamaica, he's got a lovely voice. He must have been from England. You know, that's why Lindy got to read the news because he had an English accent. So I didn't know Lindy was such a good footballer until I came to England and my dad told me that Lindy was a footballer. And when I came here and he played up in Middlesbrough, so that was, that was interesting. More and more black players began making their way through the ranks of English football in the early 1960s. There was Stan Horn at Aston Villa. Dennis Walker became Manchester United's first black player closely followed by Tony Whelan, who's still involved with the academy at Old Trafford. And in 1962, nearly 40 years after Jack Leslie was effectively deselected by England, a black player finally stepped onto the pitch for the national team. Except he's not really remembered or celebrated for being the first to do so. I always knew my dad weren't the first. I always knew he wasn't the first for West Ham. There was a guy called Fred Colby who played for Thames Ironworks. But one thing I have always known, or never been told that he wasn't, he's the first black guy to play for England. He scored on his debut. Oh. So how can he be the first black guy to play and score for England, okay, and mostly be forgotten? Mitch Charles's dad, John Charles, was born in Canning Town in London in 1944. His mum was a native East Ender, while his dad was a merchant seaman from Grenada in the Caribbean. Charles became the first black man to play in the top flight for West Ham. But before his club debut, he played for England under-18s in 1962, becoming the first black footballer to officially run out for the Three Lions. When he started playing football, when he actually got into the first team with West Ham, he was given the number six shirt for West Ham from Bobby Moore. Wow. And every single match my dad played for the full team at West Ham, it was me dad and Bobby Moore at the back. Mm. The, the profile can't get any higher. Here's Harry Redknapp. I went to West Ham. I left school at 14. And my first year there, we won the FA Youth Cup. As a, I was a 15-year-old. It was under 18 and a half competition. Um, we won the FA Youth Cup. We beat Liverpool in the final. And we were getting crowds of 25, 30,000 people at the games. It was incredible. And, and Charlo was our captain. Johnny was 18. And he was the captain. And at the end of the year, we all went to the, uh, we won the cup and we had a big function at a, a restaurant in Ilford, a big restaurant, uh, you know, and uh, Ron Green was the manager and all our mums and dads came. And Charlo came with his wife. He was married. He was like 18, John. And we was all like with our mums and dads and Charlo was with his Carol, his missus. So it was quite amazing, really, you know. He was a great lad, John. John's brother Clive, also a defender, came through the ranks at West Ham a few years later too. And Hammer's favourite, Clyde Best, remembers the pair fondly. 
he was a good player. John was a great player, right back, tough. He'll let you know that when it was time to boot you, he'll boot you. <laughs> let you know, you know, and uh, he was good. You know, um, good pass to the ball, can get forward, overlap. That's what they call it today, wingbacks. Yes. But I tell them a wingback in my day was overlapping fullback. You know, and in those days at West Ham, that's what we played with all the time. Um, we had Billy Bonds, Frank Lampard, John Charles, and they all could overlap. Then Clive came along. He was a left back, and he had a sweet left foot, could play, and could get forward, knock nice crosses in, you know. And they were both quality players in their own right. You know, they just didn't probably get the recognition that they should have because they didn't play that long, long at that level. But um, they were both quality players. I know Clive for sure because he's in the same youth team as me. Wow. And nobody had a left, uh, sweeter left foot than Clive. You know, um, if you kick John, you bet your life you're going to get kicked back. You know, <laughs> because he will make sure. And he was rugged and wasn't afraid to go into tackle. And um, he was a great teammate. He was quite humble, really. He didn't really speak much about his achievements. And... Um, you know, he used to talk as much about working down the market than he did. It was just a job for him, you know. It was just a job. That's yeah. so crazy. I, I guess if he was working, if he was on today's money, oh, it would probably be a different outlook, you know. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. He was on he, he was on thirty five pound a week playing for West Ham, and uh, he left and he was earning hundreds, hundreds a week as a greengrocer. Mitch Charles says his dad never spoke about being racially abused as a player and that he remained popular with Hammers fans even after injury forced him into early retirement and a new career in the fruit and veg trade. I'll tell you what what really used to make me realise that he was famous. And that's when he used to work down Spitfields Market um, in London. And we used to drive up there in the lorry. And we used to be driving through the East End, just in traffic jams like everyone else, down busy streets, the old Whitechapel Road. And people used to go... <laughs> Whistle, Charlo, Charlo. Everyone waved him. Everyone knew the old man. He was, I guess, there weren't a huge amount of black people around then, uh, around back then. And where he was famous, and he was in the East End, and that was all West Ham fans. We used to drive home in that lorry, and constantly people were bibbing and waving <laughs> for years. Harry Redknapp has nothing but fond memories of Charlo. John was a good player, good footballer. He was a hard nut, Charlo. You know, you didn't mess about with him. But he was a, he was a good footballer. He played midfield. He played at the back. He played fullback. Yeah, Johnny was a good player. And so was Clive. The pair of them were both very... Clive was a good left-back. So John was the captain of the, of the, the youth team that I played in that won the FA Youth Cup. And mm-hmm. uh, all that team, actually, I think, part one went on and played in the first team at West Ham at some time. And John was our captain and um, he was a leader of our group, that's for sure. I asked Mitch Charles about his father's legacy. It doesn't seem as though his name is mentioned alongside other black footballing pioneers. Why is that? Hmm. I've been trying to find that out for so many years. Since since the internet came along, and, and do you know what? I feel like a bit of a bloody nuisance, really. Um, I've tweeted some, some high-profile players over the years, and I've never had a response. Never, oh. not once. But, um, you know, even if I go on Twitter now and see a, a conversation about black players and stuff, and fans say, hold on, it was John Charles, there's never a reply, really. So why he's forgotten, 
I don't know. I'd love to know. Yeah. Maybe it's because he wasn't in the first team. I don't know. So how much of an influence do you think your dad's career had on the, the superstars of today? You know, the, the likes of Jaden Sancho, even Raheem Sterling before that. Rio Ferdinand before that, John Barnes, you know, quite a few generations of black footballers that have gone on to achieve phenomenal yeah. success. Do you think your dad helped in that? Well, he, he must have done. You know, there's no there's no two ways about it. He must have done. I remember when my dad started working for Tesco's in, in the, the late 90s, 90s, 80s. He worked in a local branch and there was a black kid there. And the manager said, this is, this is John. He's starting the night shift for you guys. And this young black kid, he went, you went, John? John Charles? He went, yeah. He said, West Ham's John Charles? He went, yeah. He said, I love you. He said, you was the hero <laughs> to all the kids out in, uh, like in East Ham way. So hear that, it's fantastic. But for the names you mentioned, of course, it must have made a difference. But have they heard of him? I don't know. Mm. I don't know. Of, of course, it's, it's he's paved the way. But are them names in, yeah. in his head. Perhaps in, not in a direct head. influence, but what he did might have helped to change perceptions of black people being, uh, I suppose, Absolutely. accepted as, as footballers. Absolutely. You know, my dad used to go out to 30, 50, 60,000 fans all around the country, you know, and there was only a few black guys in the league when he, when he played. So, yeah. And, and, and he used to go to areas when people hadn't seen black people. You're listening to Coming In From The Cold, the definitive history of black footballers in the English game. After the break, we'll tell you all about the tragic story of Albert Johannesson, English football's first modern-day black star player. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.
We all know about the lack of black managers in English football. But did you know that back in 1962, the same year that John Charles played for England, Tony Collins became the first coach of colour to guide a team to a cup final? Tony was born in London in 1926 to a white mother and a black father. After serving in World War II, Collins went on to enjoy a long professional playing career, turning out more than 300 times for clubs including Watford, Norwich and Crystal Palace. In 1960, he became player manager of Rochdale and two years later, he took his bottom tier side to the League Cup final. A true pioneer, Collins went on to be a scout for Don Revy at Leeds and with England, before taking up a similar role with Manchester United, where he was credited with discovering stars including Paul McGrath and Lee Sharp. Staying in the North, Leeds United have been promoted to the top flight, playing exciting football under a charismatic, unorthodox coach. But no, we haven't suddenly jumped forward to 2020. Instead, we're talking about the Leeds of the mid-1960s under Revy, and their star player was South African Albert Johannesson, dubbed the Black Flash, a man whose career burned bright before descent into personal challenges led to a sad ending. Lord Herman Oosley, who founded Kick It Out, fondly remembers the left-winger as being one of his early football heroes. Never knew anything about the history of black people playing football in this country. I, as a kid growing up, and I came from the Caribbean in 1957, and my, it was my first real connection with football was seeing Pele playing in the World Cup in 1958 on a black and white television in, in my new home in South London in Peckham. And I was 58, and the next real impression that I got of black people playing football was seeing Albert Johansson playing for Leeds in 1961. He was magnificent. I mean, he, he, as I said, he was one of the first people, and he was so good. He was absolutely, he, he was a sturdy guy, one of the first African players to really hit the scene here. Uh, and to be playing for Leeds, and they had a big contingent. What was interesting about Leeds at the time, they had a big contingent of NF support on the terraces, but they also had a group of anti-racist fans who were campaigning all the time to get rid of those racists. But Albert was the first person that made an impression on me because he was so good. He was the first African black player to play in an FA Cup final in that period. Uh, and he was fast, lightning quick, and really good. Johannesson was born in South Africa in 1940 under the inhumane apartheid system that legally classified the nation's races with white people at the top of society and black people at the bottom. Albert's early life in his township was harsh, but football offered a way out. Despite reportedly not playing the sport until he was 18, Johannesson's talent saw him quickly recommended to Leeds by one of his school teachers. After a short trial at Ellen Road in 1961, Albert became Don Revie's first signing for the club. There was already a pathway for black South African talent in England, Leeds had another of Albert's countrymen on their books, a winger named Jerry Francis, while striker Steve McConey had played for Coventry in Cardiff City in the 1950s. Hepburn Harrison Graham is a former sports editor at the BBC. He's also Albert Johannesson's nephew. He says his uncle Albert, a naturally quiet, shy man, 
faced a difficult transition to a new land far from home. It was tough. It was very, very tough. He found England very cold, a very sterile place. You've got to imagine he's coming all the way from South Africa on his own to a new country, north of England, 1960s, very white. At least back in South Africa, he saw plenty of people that looked like him come to England and leave. He saw very, very few people like him. So it was a bit of an eye-opener for him, particularly when he saw snow for the first time. But um, he, he found it difficult, and on many occasions, I believe, he was tempted to go back home, not just because of the cold weather, but because he missed his family, and he didn't have any support structure here. It took Johannesson a couple of years to really get into the groove, but once he did, he was virtually unstoppable. Top scoring with 15 goals and setting up countless others as Leeds won the second division title in 1964. Harrison Graham says his uncle brought a combination of speed and skill to the game that was almost ahead of its time. And in doing so, Johannesson could be described as being English football's first black star of the modern era. Um, Albert Johannesson was a very skillful, tricky player. I was trying to think who I would compare him with in today's Premier League. And I'm tempted to say Raheem Sterling, but he had far more tricks up his sleeve. I would say he was much more like Laurie Cunningham, who used to play for West Bromwich Albion. And um, apparently, uh, Laurie Cunningham admits to basing his style of play on Albert Johannesson. For more modern times, Tony Daly, that used to play at Aston Villa, or Franz Carr, who used to play at Nottingham Forest. He was that kind of player. Very, very tricky. You know, he, he, he was full of tricks and skill, as well as tremendous pace. In their first season after promotion to the top flight, Leeds just missed out on the title by goal difference to Manchester United. And they finished FA Cup runners-up to Liverpool in the same year. Johannesson became the first black man to play in the cup final in that 1965 Wembley showpiece. But his career took a downward turn from there. He seemed to be unfairly singled out by the fans and the media for his poor performance on the day. The following year, Mike Trebilko would become the first player of black descent to score in the FA Cup final, as he grabbed the brace in Everton's famous 3-2 comeback win over Sheffield Wednesday. Albert's confidence and form fell away after his cup final appearance, and he became increasingly affected by injuries. Here's football writer Phil Facilli. Fantastic player. He had a very troubled background, and I think, you know, he came from a rigid apartheid society where, uh, as we all know, um, you know, black people were taught that they were inferior. It was ingrained into, into the education system was about kind of separating out uh, the, the, the different uh, coloured sections of the population and kind of uh, grading people by colour. So he came with that baggage and it, he found it very difficult at first to assimilate, if you want to call it, that, into, into the culture of Leeds United. But he became, you know, uh, 
their best player for about three or four seasons. And he stayed there. He stayed at Leeds for about eight seasons. Very, very sad ending, you know, uh, lived alone in a, in a, a flat in Leeds and, and died alone. And, um, you know, wasn't looked after by the club after he finished his career. So a fantastic player, but, you know, the, the, uh, and the apartheid, the baggage of apartheid, I think, affected his career. The horrors of apartheid did affect Albert, as did the racist abuse he was subjected to in England. This was an era when new arrivals to the country were greeted with signs declaring no blacks, no Irish, no dogs, in the windows of guest houses as they looked for accommodation. It was a harsh time on the streets for black people. And this attitude was often shared with even more venom by football fans in many of the grounds Johannesson played in. We shouldn't underestimate the impact that racism has on black footballers. And um, I can tell you, I've interviewed black players in the past and they said to me, oh, you don't really hear the racist abuse. It is a lie. They hear every last bit of it. Uh, certainly that's what Albert told me. He had very low self-esteem because of it. Because imagine if you are working in an office environment and every day you go into that office and you are called stupid, idiot, sick, imbecile, day after day after day after day. Eventually, it's going to affect your self-esteem. And your self-esteem can go from a high to a very low, low level. And that's what happened with Albert and listening to that racist abuse. Now, people say to me, well, he was from South Africa in the apartheid era. Surely he should have been used to that kind of racist abuse. But it's one thing being abused by an individual in the street on a daily basis. It's quite another being abused by 50,000 home fans screaming abuse at you for 90 minutes you have to put up with that racist abuse it has to affect you surely don't you think england striker brian dean played at leeds for four years during the 1990s he recognizes johannesson as a groundbreaking figure he was a trailblazer like anybody who is a trailblazer they opened the doors for other players to come through who had similar abilities and made it easier for them. The first person to come through the, the, the door is always the one who has to, the biggest burden. This was a period when the reducer, the deliberate smashing through of a skillful player early in the game was a legitimate tactic. Scarred by racist abuse from the terraces and battered by rough tactics from opponents, Johannesson fell out of the first team picture at Ellen Road as the 60s progressed. In all, he made 200 appearances and scored 67 goals for Leeds. He was released in 1970 and played at York City for a couple of seasons before retiring. By then, Albert had already begun to seek solace in the bottle. Divorced, down on his luck in Leeds and low on money. Alcohol was an opponent he couldn't beat. 
Albert sadly died in 1995, aged just 55. But before then, Harrison Graham caught up with his uncle one last time. And I hadn't seen my uncle for about 20 years. So I knew he was living in Leeds and I thought, I wonder if I can reach out to him. So I had a friend who worked for the Yorkshire Post and he did a little interview with me and he ran an article in the newspaper headline looking for Uncle Albert. And amazingly, Uncle Albert saw the article and requested a meeting with me in a local pub. Um, I was there a while, he was late. And then I saw this, what appeared to be an old black man shuffle through the door, fairly disheveled. But I knew it had to be him. And the, he greeted me like an old friend. He, he and my father got on very well. He had a lot of respect for my father. And anyway, we sat down and he had some belong, belongings with him, his wedding album and a couple of souvenirs from his football playing day. And it was, it was a sad meeting. He had clearly fallen on hard times. And he did want me to buy him drinks. I, I, I bought him a couple, but I knew what his state was. So I didn't try to encourage that. The next time I went to see Uncle Albert, Albert was at his funeral. But he wasn't bitter in that meeting. He still, his eyes still twinkled when he remembered his Leeds playing days. But he was also hurt, especially by the treatment of his manager, Don Reavy, who I think he felt treated him worse than any other player at Leeds United at the time. In 2019, spurred on by campaigning work by Albert's daughters, who are now living in America, a blue plaque was unveiled in Johannesson's honour at Ellen Road, marking his contribution to the development of English football. Brian Dean was in attendance as Leeds honoured their former star player. It was sad for me because Leeds United recognised this guy as a great player. And unfortunately, the way how his final years were, were, were kind of really sad for football and that's why I think that football has to be accountable you know as footballers and, and the entertainment industry we give so much to the community but where do we get the time to be taking care of ourselves you know we, we have to explore that more and look to find answers so that we can help people post-retirement. Despite his sad ending Harrison Graham says his uncle Albert is an important figure in English football history and his legacy should not be forgotten. He was a trailblazer, regardless of what anybody says. So I'm really pleased that there is a blue plaque for Albert, but I think his story is still very much untold. I think he should be part of Black History Month every year in schools across England, because he was, along with Arthur Wharton, Walter Tull, and Jack Leslie, a real trailblazer. And it wasn't until Clyde Best came along that there was another black footballer of such prominence. 
How hard would it be to do your job while being subjected to this? Well, Clyde Best had to, as he made his way in the English game in the late 1960s. And his talent, bravery and refusal to buckle was indicative of the extra burden black players had to carry in their careers. And the magnificent. I remember it as something that would never um, get out of your mind, but, you know, as long as it doesn't damage you and destroy you. Um, my main thing was when they got on to me, I said, I'm going to let you see what this uh, little black boy could do. Clyde Cyril Best was born in Bermuda in 1951. By the time he was 15, he was already playing for the national team. Local coaches there had connections with West Ham. And a couple of years later, aged just 17, young Clyde headed to London for a trial. His father gave him a message that would stick with Best as he headed across the world to realise his dream. My dad could back him from him because my dad originally is from Barbados and he ended up in Bermuda, you know, and he was in charge of running the prison. So he uh, told me, hey, if that's what you want, you know, go for it, reach the sky and um, just remember, you're not only playing for yourself, you're playing for the people that, you know, are in other people that are in England struggling and um, working in all the jobs that nobody else wanted. So, you know, I took it upon myself and just went ahead and done what I had to do. Wow. So so did you feel that sense of responsibility then, that sense of duty as, when you were playing? That Was that not quite heavy on your shoulders? Not me, no. The type of character I am, um, you know, I knew what I had to do. I knew what the plan was and I was just pleased to be able to do it and make people happy, you know. And um, when I look at all the guys of colour playing in England now, it makes me feel good, you know, so knowing that you were a part of having that, you know. Mm, definitely. So how was your talent spotted? I think that's an interesting story, isn't it? <laughs> well, the person that spotted me was the guy that um, ran our national programme in Bermuda because I was in the national team in Reno when I was about 15 years old. And uh, he spotted me and he, I think he had been on some courses with Ron Greenwood, who was our coach at West Ham. And he made arrangements for me to come over. And uh, Ron gave me trial. And it all was history after that. And as I say, I played in the youth team and the A team, didn't play many reserve team games. And, um, you know, he liked what he saw and he gave me a contract, you know. Harry Redknapp, who was a first-team player at the Hammers when Best arrived for his trial in 1968, remembers the instant impression the young striker made. But his first uh, training was amazing because he's training with a youth team. Now, no one knows who he's turned up. They've, they've let him train because he's come along, he's got his boots, he came with Clive. Ron Greenwood said, let him go with a youth team to train. You know, he's probably thought, oh, well, he's, you know, he's not going to be any, you know. He goes over and trains with the, with the kids. And we were finishing training, the senior first team players, and we're all walking off and the kids are doing shooting, crossing and shooting. The balls are coming over, they're hitting them over the bar, missing them. Suddenly, up comes this lad, catches on his chest and volleys it into the top corner from 20 yards and everybody's gone, did you see that? They've all stopped. They've all stopped, like Bobby Moore, everybody, you know, Jeff Hurst. Like, oh, dear. Who's that? Anyway, we're all stood now watching. The kids are coming in again, missing the ball, miss kicking it. In comes Big Clyde, 
bang, it's another one right in the top corner again. Suddenly, the manager, Ron Greenwood, who had no real interest at foot, he's over there now. What? He came back in the dressing room. He said he's 16. He was built like Sonny Liston, the boxer, right? He was a big, he was six foot tall, big. He was 16. So he played in the youth team on the Saturday. They put him in the youth team straight away. I mean, they played Arsenal or somebody. I think they won 2 0. He got both the goals. He ran Arsenal, absolutely murdered them. And within two months, he, was, he went on tour with the first team. He went to America and finished up with a week in Bermuda. And Clyde, Clyde was on the trip and playing every game in the first team. Sean Gota, a cult hero for Manchester City fans, is also from Bermuda. Though from very different eras of the game, Gota grew to understand the important place his countryman holds in English football. Clyde Pass, I heard more about, because, because of the difference and we didn't have social media, I learned more about Clyde Pass when I was here in England. Mm. So people were like, you're from Bermuda? You must know Clyde Bass. So growing up, I didn't hear much about him because we didn't, Okay, you know, yeah. I, I was young when he was playing. So I would not have realized, I'm sure, I'm sure my parents would have said, that's Clyde Bass playing. I'd have went, oh, brilliant. But we didn't, we didn't see it. We didn't have it every week, you know. Yeah. It was one week West Ham was playing, another week we had what they was called, I don't know if it was called Big League Soccer, mm. which which was brought from, from the UK. Um, so... You know, we'd see him one week and probably won't see him for like another three or four weeks. Uh, so it was a shame because, he, but he did end up being the national coach for a period that I was um, that I was going back and playing for the national team. Mm. Yeah, so that that was kind of unique and special. Clyde Best was a tall, strong target man with a turn of speed and a dose of dazzling skill. He made his debut in the top flight in 1969 and ended up scoring more than 50 goals in West Ham colours over seven seasons at Upton Park. Writer Emmy Anura, author of Pitch Black, the story of black British footballers, says Clyde was the black star of his time. I definitely remember Clyde Best. Clyde Best would have been the, for seemingly a long time, he would have been the only black footballer who you saw on a regular basis at that particular time. And because he played with West Ham, because they were in the first division, he was probably the most high profile black footballer at the time. Although, of course, there were there were a few others playing in their lower leagues, but he would have been the first one. As the most visible black player in England, Clyde would sadly become the target for vicious racist abuse in many of the stadiums he played in. But Bess says he used this as fuel for the bigger battle he was fighting. You can't let that stuff put you down because the minute you lose your temper, if I would have lost my temper, do you think it would have been that many people of colour playing today? I don't think so, you know. So I had to be strong in that area. And my main uh, focus was on, hey, being here with yourself, doing what you had to do. Don't let it get you down. Keep on top of it. And my main aim was whenever I went to a stadium and they were booing, I say, yeah, I'm going to pick it up and do something special and stick it in the net. And they forgot about it, you know what I mean? <laughs> so... I remember being at Everton one day. They were on me all through the game until I had enough. I picked this ball up from the half line. A boy named Terry Derricutt was marking me, and I dragged him from the half line all the way to the goalkeeper. When the goalkeeper came, I gave him a little move. He sat down on his backside, and I just chipped it over the top of his head. Drew Royal, Howard Kendall said it's the best goal they've ever seen at Goodison Park. (laughs) So, you know, when you do stuff like that, the crowd just ignore what Kalai was 
and they just applaud everything I've done after that, you know. So that's the best way to silence the critics and the people in the stands is to stick the ball in the back of the net and let them know that, hey, you can play just like the other guys. Yeah, and you did that quite a few times with West Ham. What, When you look back on your career, what do you think your legacy is that you left behind? I would think and I hope that it is. Being my dad was from Barbados, I consider myself half Bajan as well. <laughs> you know, and um, as long as I can make the people in the Caribbean happy and proud because I know what they were going through at that time, you know, working in the train station, working in the restaurants, washing dishes and stuff like that. And if I was able to put a smile on the face, that's what made me happy, you know, and I think many a time I had I knew one or two people that worked in the restaurants and um, hotels and stuff like that, and they would tell me, "Hey, everybody was happy today because you played well and you scored." You know, so that's what it's all about, and you know that's what pleased me more than anything. Best says the rest of the West Ham squad were a great support to him in some difficult moments in England. My teammates were fantastic guys. I mean, when you're playing in a team with people like Bobby Moore, Hurst and Peters, and they're giving you advice and help, you know, you can't ask for anything more, you know, and that's what I had at most times. As I say, my teammates were brilliant people, you know, they treated me just like I were one of them, you know, so we all done things together. We went out together, we ate together, and as a because of that, a lot of them that are living today, I'm still friends with them today. So, And you had quite a few high-profile friends. Like You mentioned your teammates that supported you, but tell me about your relationship with Bobby Moore in particular. Well, Bobby, I label him one of the best. I tell people all the time, he's one of the best human beings I've ever met in my life. He was a down-to-earth player, down-to-earth person. He used to help me a lot you know, in my games and tell me what to do and stuff like that. And, you know, having paid attention to a lot of it, it works, you know, because here's a person that was captain of England, won the, just won the World Cup, and I'm going two years later, a little kid from Bermuda, coming to play in this league with world-class players, you know. So, as I say, Bubby was a class act, as along with a lot of other my players, Billy Barnes, who I idolize. I tell people every team, if I ever had to pick a team, Billy Vaughn's name will be the first one on the sheet because of the effort and uh, passion he had for the game. You know, you had Trevor Brooklyn, you had Martin Peters, you had Jeff Hurst. You know, all these guys were world-class players, you know, and um, to play with them and be in the same company and eventually on the same pedestal of them, you know, was an honor and a privilege. And, you know, I thank them all because they not only were good players, they were good friends and good human beings. London's East End was one of the most diverse parts of England at the time, and West Ham were a trailblazing club when it came to black players. Before Clyde, there was John Charles, who we heard about earlier. And while injury forced John out of the game, his younger brother Clive Charles made his Hammers debut in 1970. And before long, forward Ade Koka, who moved to London from Nigeria aged 11, joined Clyde and Charles in the first team squad. In fact, it was West Ham rather than West Brom who became the first English club to name three black players in their team, as Clyde, Ade and Clive 
lined up for a 2-0 win over Spurs on Easter Sunday 1972. Former Newcastle, Norwich and Brighton manager Chris Hewton was born and raised in East London and he remembers the impact of West Ham's pioneers as he tried to build his own playing career. That era at West Ham had players like uh, Clyde Best and the Charles brothers and that was probably a little bit earlier than that, Ali Coker. And um, so probably, you know, they would have been the players that would have been sort of closest to me. But but I was never brought up really, you know, idolising so many um, footballers on, on television mm-hmm. because what we have to remember in them days as well, where it's you know, wall-to-wall television, um, football on television, and has been for quite some time, you know, for us in that era, you know, it was probably... Saturday night and Sunday, it was it was match of the day and and uh, the big match, and um, so for me it was more about playing than than you know idolising players as such. Did you ever notice that footballers were black? Did you notice their race? Was that important to you? Did you see a black player and think, wow, it's something I could aspire to, or did you just see footballers? Um, no, I, I saw black footballers and I saw footballers that, that were black for what they were. And I think it was difficult, you know, not to because, as I say, in the era that um, that I was brought up in, it was it wasn't just about football; it was it was everyday life. When you saw, you know, black people um, in in positions, invisible positions and positions of authority and positions of, of management, it was always very very different. And probably it was only you know it was only as I got older and you get more. Uh, educated in in life that you you know it really hits you what it means you know and what what those even before my era you know had to go through when Clyde Best first moved from Bermuda to East London he lived with the Charles family for the first few years there he found a home from home and their English mother treated Clyde as one of her own she made sure that if you interfered with us everybody else is going to come looking for you I will never forget we, Clive and I, played one night against Sheffield United in a League Cup. And this one bloke was in the stands and he was shouting all these nasty words to Clive and I. And he ended up calling Clive quarter two and me midnight. Because <laughs> he was a little bit lighter and I was a little bit darker. But she got tired. And she went up to the man and she said, Mr. Let me tell you something. It's disgusting what you're saying to them two players who happen to be my sons. And he had a pipe in his mouth and she stuffed it right down his throat. (laughs) And she never went back to West Ham anymore from that day, you know. And um, she stuck up for us. You couldn't do nothing against us. I mean, the boys got treated royally. We got everything done for us. The girls will make sure. And uh, we, it was an unbelievable experience, you know, and I would always be indebted to the Charles family and I love them like they're my um, blood sisters and brothers, you know, and every point I get back to England, every time I get back, I make it a point to go see them. Well, he came home over and played. I mean, what he went through in them days, he was our mate, he was one, you know, it, but, you know, he had to suffer at times. He had to suffer some abuse, some, you know, from away fans. The West Ham fans loved him. You had a few idiots everywhere you went who would give him some abuse. And um, But he just got on with it, never retaliated. He was absolute gentleman on the pitch, off the pitch. He, he was just a class guy. 
As Harry Redknapp says, Clyde Best was a fine player and a fine man. He proved that black players could succeed at the highest level, even while carrying the extra weight and responsibility they were loaded with. I asked Clyde about his status as a bona fide black football icon. But it's not just Bermudians that you've inspired, Mr. Best, because I've been speaking to quite a few players from the past, um, the likes oh, of Viv yeah. Anderson, um, yeah. Paul Parker, and they all mention your name as someone yeah. that they watched growing up, someone that they wanted yeah. to aspire to. You've inspired so many pro footballers. And I feel like without you doing what you did, they wouldn't be able to do what they've done. Well, I'm glad that I was able to do it. As I said, the Lord was good enough to pick me. And coming from a little small place like Bermuda, that's what makes it all the sweeter. You know, because it goes to show that people from, you know, these parts of the world and the Caribbean can play. And um, it's been long overdue that our players, you know, uh, get involved in the league and play and don't let people deter them from their goals, you know. And as I said to you, I knew as an 18-year-old what my responsibility would be, not only for myself, but to make it better for people like Viv Anderson, Parker. As I say, hey, Cyril, it was an honor and a privilege, and I'm just glad that I've got people with quality keeping the legacy going, you know, and that's what life's all about. Where Clyde Best had led, many others would follow. As the 1970s progressed, the trickle of black talent would soon begin to flood the English game. And nowhere would that changing tide be felt more than in the black country. English football would be changed forever by three individuals and their brilliance at West Brom. The story of the three degrees on the next episode of Coming In From The Cold. Coming In From The Cold is an unedited production for the Wireless Group and supported by the Audio Content Fund. Hear the rest of this series on TalkSport or subscribe to Coming In From The Cold on your favourite podcast app and smart speaker. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odour control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.